Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome back, listeners, to the 300th episode extravaganza. I am Patch, and with me, looking sharp in his self-drying jacket, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. <laughs> That's pretty... Was that... Did you make that up on the fly based on me wearing this hoodie with my... No, I made it up on the McFly. No, I, I, I oh, didn't make oh, it up. Oh, gosh. I didn't, I didn't... It wasn't because you're wearing a hood, and no, I just just thought it'd be fun because it kind of looks like that's what i'm wearing it really it's is like compressive dry. yeah yeah <laughs> well next to him sporting some power lace nikes and here to tell us why the future could be bright is returning guest and friend of the show adam rakoff i'm back You're i'm back. back from the future or from the last episode but yeah thanks guys it's great to be back and i think aaron needs that self-drying jacket with all the rain in seattle so maybe we need to send him one yeah, I'll see. Deal. I'll see what I can find in my in my yeah. retro 2015 trunk, as it is now yeah. 2021, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. If you're listening to this episode, we assume you've already checked out our first installment, Back to the Future, as we talked about it as well as the trilogy as a whole. So we won't bore you with any meaningless rhetoric. Where we are going, we definitely don't need roads, but where we end up, as far as our love for this second entry is concerned, well, we'll see. This is your spoiler warning, as we've given you before, so just know that we are going to be talking about this movie in detail. There it is. Let's get into it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we all absolutely loved Back to the Future. I think that's uncontested, undisputed. We are all giving it five stars. Perfect film. The second entry, coming about four years later, I think we all have a few different reactions and I'd like to kind of go around the room and kind of get everybody's take on how they saw this movie watching it for the podcast. Well, it's probably no surprise. I really like this movie as I like the whole trilogy. It is not as good as the first by any stretch. There's not much uh, that can match the sort of perfect script and execution of that first film. We talked about this in the last episode, but for all entirely different reasons, I really enjoy this film. And I feel that as a sequel to the first and as the middle chapter in a trilogy, it really holds up and it's still a lot of fun. It's more slapstick at times than the original. It doesn't have quite the same tone, but I kind of find that to be charming. I think this really is a suspenseful, fun, energetic, and and just well-made film. There's some of the visual effects that are in this film were so good that people didn't realize they were, <laughs> they were visual effects. We'll get into that a little more later. But I will say, though, that even though I really love this movie, there are definitely some things that upon watching it probably for the 15th time now that don't hold up so great. And other things that I actually that have grown on me for over the over the years for example the opening future sequences when i first saw the movie as an 11 year old or 12 year old in 1989 in the theater they they always felt a little hokey to me i kind of felt like they it was this section of the film this this 30 minute section that you just kind of had to get past because the first film set it up that they had to go into the future and fix something about marty's kids 
And so they needed to get over this sort of this sort of speed bump. And then, for me at least, the film really took off once they got back to the alternate kind of dark 1985. That's when the movie really, for me, went an entirely new and unexpected direction. And uh, and I really just kind of was immersed in the story. So as I got older, though, I found that what I thought was hokey about those opening future scenes was really just the filmmaker's attempt to show a very positive future and not really attempt to predict the sort of using science to to predict what the future would really be like in 2015, but just to give us a world that we might all want to live in one day. And I, for one, would kind of like to live in that 2015, although maybe not in Hilldale because that's just, you know, not a very good place to live. Say tranks, yeah. or something like that, and zip heads, <laughs> zip heads. <laughs> nothing but a, whatever those yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, I love that actually. It's such a funny line because they're they're clearly just making up future terms for sort of drug addicts, <laughs> whatever sort of <laughs> slang lingo they decided to come up with. And they even say like she got really tranked or something like that, talking about Elizabeth Shue uh, being uh, un- unconscious in the alleyway. So yeah, some fun lingo that they came up with. Well, I'll go. And kind of be sandwiched by the love a little bit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> On our notes, it says we're going to talk about our our reactions, positive, comma, and otherwise. And Patrick had to add that because of me. Because I'm definitely, I think, more of the otherwise. I'm it because we stay positive and we keep feeling film, okay? Oh, I'm feeling. No, I'm don't, feeling. Don't piss on this movie, please. That's what I'm saying. No, I'm going to. I'm going to be honest right here, and then I'm going to... <laughs> Rain it in for the rest of the podcast okay. and focus on the positives. No, I, you know, I don't hate the movie. And that's what I wrote on my letterbox review of this right away. I, I don't hate this, even though I go on to then talk about a lot of the things that I don't like. There are definitely things I do enjoy. I think first and foremost, the most important thing is that it's the same characters and the characters we have built a relationship with that is so meaningful in the first film that you can't fully ruin it. No matter how much I disagree with certain choices or, you know, the film's style or whatever, I still love Marty and I love Doc and getting to spend time with them will always be a joy. Getting more time with Biff and Griff is actually interesting in this film. Like that performance I think is wonderful and one of the best performances of the entire trilogy like his role in this particular movie and how he carries himself over all these different characters i think is great thomas wilson i think is his name don't really know anything he's done other than this movie trilogy but uh yeah he's great so the continuing nature of the story and the way that the world is being the fact that the world is being altered i like i don't necessarily love the choices and how that goes about i think it gets convoluted i think we do a lot of jumping and i start to lose interest when we start to go big 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 what i love 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 so much about back to the future is how confined it is it's very simplistic this movie kind of puts me in a bad spot right off the bat because when we jump to the future i find it to be incredibly goofy and silly and off-putting and and i know that they made this in 
the mid 80s. And so it's not their fault that that is the perception at the time the movie was made. But looking at it today, just watching it, it's hard to for me to enjoy it because I found it to be so silly. And it feels forced to me in a big way. Like they're trying to focus on the fact that they're in another time period over and over as we jump through the ages in this movie. Whereas in the first film, I don't feel like that's the focal point. It's not about what's different in the town. Yes, those things come up, but it's so hyper-focused on Marty and his story and what is happening with the relationships that are going on. And I feel like this one spends a little bit, it kind of swings the pendulum a little more in favor of like, let's show the stuff more than the person. So that kind of doesn't sit as well with me. I just think that there's not the same amount of charm. There's not the same amount of wit. There's not the same amount of, you know, smart dialogue. There's a lot more camp. Things are a lot more exaggerated. It's a lot darker at times, which is a weird mix. If you look at like the opening sequences and then the, you know, like post-apocalyptic stuff, it's a very wide gap of things. I actually thought this movie spent a lot more time in the future. That was a surprise to me. I didn't realize how quickly we leave that setting because that's what everybody remembers, right? Is the Nikes and the jacket and the hoverboards and stuff. And then, but we weave it and we don't really spend much time there the rest of the film. So um, I still enjoy it enough to, you know, watch it. But I think I'm at the point where for me, the trilogy is really, it ends at Back to the Future. Like I am perfectly satisfied with my one movie and I don't need to continue watching this. I actually prefer my imagination and the story that I think I would come up with for what may or may not have happened with this group of characters more than I prefer what Bob Gale and the filmmaker and Zemeckis and the crew actually gave us. So I don't hate it. I like parts of it. I enjoy parts of it, but it's not a favorite. Thoughts, Aaron, and and very much in the vein of the thoughts that I've had. I'm higher on it. I'm I'm sort of in the middle of you and Adam, in that, in particular, this was the first movie of the trilogy that I remember loving more than the other two, and it's because of what you mentioned, Aaron, that we spend this time in the future of this cool stuff, Jaws nineteen and hoverboards and really bright, colorful, popping kind of wish list future that we want or that we think we want. It's a very creative palette. And tonally, it speaks to some of the goofiness or campiness that we get in the script. As an adult, and in particular watching it back in 2015 as part of the trilogy, it went down partly because the first one was just vaulted to a new level for me, but also because I recognized it for what it was. In some ways, I feel like Back to the Future Part 2 suffers from being a sequel made distantly from its first entry. I feel like any second entry, and we could have this conversation offline, any second entry is bound to be lesser than its first, especially when you have something as powerful as Back to the Future. An easy comparison I can make is Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park to me is a perfect movie. I recently came around to, as I'm watching Camp Cretaceous with my son, I wanted to rewatch The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3. 
I have a better appreciation for those movies. But if I'm going to go back to a Jurassic movie, it's going to be the first one. And like you, Aaron, I could leave it there. That story is complete. I get everything I want from that movie. And I get everything I want from Back to the Future as well. But Adam, on our last episode, you mentioned that you can watch Back to the Future by itself. Your first experience was having the tag to be continued. And you're like, what? Knowing that the theatrical run didn't have that because they didn't necessarily know how big of a movie it was going to be. But you mentioned that if you watch part two, you really have to watch part three. And I think that what we're going to find when we discuss part three is we're going to get some of that same kind of tone. We're going to get wild. We're going to get kind of quirky and jokey and corny. And I look at that as a deviation, but not an inconsistency with the overall story of Doc, Marty, and all the supporting characters. Back to the Future 2 really gives other supporting characters a chance to shine. Elizabeth Shue as Jennifer, we get more of her screen time in the future with her alternate self. We get to see Marty having, we get to see Michael J. Fox having fun playing all these different roles in the future. We get to see Thomas Wilson doing what I would agree is a great performance. And we get to see the practical effects and the special effects on full display. I'm not real keen on letting a movie lead with those. I don't know that Back to the Future 2 does that heavily, but I do recognize that this is a movie that was made for popcorn people, a movie that was made for let's have some fun, let's have some action. And Michael J. Fox is a comedic actor. And I think Zemeckis wanted that more on full display. Back to the Future is a very contained movie. It's tight. You get great writing, but it's not over-the-top, laugh-out-loud stuff. I mean, there's subtlety to it. You're absolutely right that Back to the Future 2 has a lot more of the, what just happened here? I love some of Doc's lines. The fact that Marty, when he finds out about his son being tried, convicted, and sentenced in a matter of two hours... Doc's delivery of, yeah, the justice system works swiftly now that they've abolished all lawyers. For some reason, that makes me laugh because it's so stupid. It's so ridiculous. The fact that Gray Sports Almanac covering 50 years, okay, 50 years and is no thicker than a comic book. Okay, I've got to (laughs) suspend my disbelief there. But that stuff doesn't really matter because the movie does set us up early as its own entry in a tonally consistent way. Was it different from the first one? Absolutely. But it's also four years removed. So while you could go back to the future or go back to watching that first entry to lead into the second one, you don't need to. You can get hints of that at the tail end of what's a recreation of the tail end of Back to the Future. And so you're led right into Back to the Future 2 with its tonally different oftentimes wide open swings of comedy and dark comedy and darkness. I agree. That is all there. But for me, watching these three all together, I can recognize two and three being a different kind, a different set of movies in the same way that I can see the matrix and it's two sequels being different. The matrix by itself is phenomenal. Matrix Revolutions, Matrix Reloaded. I could 
take or leave those. I don't really care to see those two, but I can watch the first one. And I think the same thing applies here. I just have more of a love for this trilogy as a whole because of the characters, because we've fallen in love with these, in particular, these two characters in Doc and Marty who are on full display as well. But in particular, now we get more of those supporting characters that come out and we get to see them and their acting chops, their comedic chops. So I really, really enjoy that. Yeah, and I just want to add that I, I, as we discussed last episode about Eric Stoltz being the original Marty and having they were shooting with him for almost six weeks, he was bringing a much more serious tone to that first script. And I think, and because they only reshot the scenes of Eric with Michael J. Fox and cut it all together, I think the more serious tone that was being crafted by that original uh, casting of of uh, Eric kind of carried through to the final edit of that first film, perhaps Back to the Future Part 2 and 3, which I kind of see as one big movie, and they were in fact shot together back to back as one big movie with, with sets being reused, costumes, all of that. I think that they may have been more of the tone that Bob and Robert Zemeckis were going for with the first film, but that film was just such a, a challenging film to get made, and and it turned it's sort of a happy accident that it came out the way it did, and that it has this weird blend of really serious drama and great comedic moments because Michael J. Fox, as you said, is a comedic actor. He was known for comedy. And by the time 1989 rolls around, you know, he's been on one of the top comedy sitcoms for the entirety of the 80s. He's he's in other comedic roles. I don't know, Teen Wolf, uh, The Secret of My Success. Like, that's what people expected from him. So I I do think they leaned into the comedy a little bit more and sort of the just the, the little goofiness of it all. They had a little more fun with the characters and even poking fun at themselves and at the original film. They kind of took, as we know, scenes from the original movie and redid them in all new ways um, just to kind of have fun with it. So I, for me, it's charming. I totally understand Aaron's points and, and yours. Uh, I just think that there's a lot to love about this movie. And as you said, unlike, say, the Matrix sequels, which can be a bit of a downer and just not very re rewatchable, these still are very uplifting. And because of those performances by Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd and Leah Thompson and, and really every almost everybody, we'll talk about a couple actors that maybe didn't quite live up to the, the expectations. But I think that the core uh, performances are so good and those relationships are so solid that you really want to see where their journey ends. You want to see where it all goes. And that's why, as as you said, if I watch the second one, I really have to watch the third. I have to see it to the to uh, to the very end and just get that that the end card at the very end and feel like, OK, I've I've done it. I've rewatched the entire story one more time and it's all come to a nice uh, close. And I feel good. I feel happy. I feel good about life <laughs> after watching these these three films. So, yeah, it's it, it, it's not without its faults. And as I said, I think my appreciation has changed and morphed as it has with, I think, a lot of critics. This is one of those odd films that was very mixed in its reception upon an initial release, but has since become 
by some critics considered to be one of the best sequels of all time. I wouldn't go that far, but uh, there are a lot of articles uh, as I was doing some research for this film where people are making very interesting cases for why this is one of Robert Zemeckis's best films or why it's one of the best sequels. It's just, it's, it's a, I'm not going to get into all that. You can, listeners can, can Google all of that and, and read it for themselves, but it's, it's fascinating to read. Whether you agree with it or not is beside the point. It's just an interesting thing to see how sort of like Blade Runner, how it just totally dead on arrival, didn't connect with audiences, didn't connect with critics, but over the span of, you know, two, three decades, it really has found its own, uh, its audience and has been appraised and, and reevaluated in a new light. When I look at Back to the Future 2 and 3, I was reminded of a conversation that you and I were having, Aaron, about television shows that are tied to networks, i.e. not Netflix, not Hulu, not Apple TV, and they are sort of beholden to audiences and ratings and sponsorships. And how it, for me personally, when you're telling a story in the vein of something like Lost or La Brea, you don't have an end goal. You have writers who sort of speculate about, well, this is what we think it could do. You know, if we had three seasons or this is where the story needs to go, but they battle with the need to entertain their audience every week and have really killer episodes, but let those episodes push forward into a larger story arc over the course of 22 episodes. And I think in some ways, Back to the Future 2 and 3 sort of suffers from this because of the fact that the original movie was never meant i say never the original movie was not necessarily meant theatrically to move forward it had an opening but that's why i think we enjoy it as a standalone because it has a start a middle an end aaron as you said you can imagine what the next 10 years of marty's life would be like where the story goes from here and that's where the comic books and the video games really do shine because that helps answer those imaginary questions. I don't think it makes two and three awful by any means because I really enjoy watching them. But like you said, Adam, when we look at these two, we see the potential vision for what Zemeckis wanted to do, that lighter kind of flavor, that lighter tone. And had he been given the green light and had his cake and eat it too, I believe Back to the Future would have felt more like two and three. And holistically, you could watch all three, or maybe you needed to watch all three in order to get that complete story, which is fine. So in some ways, we're getting the best and worst of both worlds, where we're getting a fantastic first entry that feels somewhat disconnected from its next two, but at the same time, loving the heart of what the franchise is and how it exists in all three. So for that, I really do enjoy all three. I was finding myself, interestingly enough, nitpicking a lot more <laughs> this time watching Back to the Future 2. And I will probably do the same thing for the third one. But it's because I've seen it so many times that I have a right to. It's become very familiar to me, so I have a right to make comments like a really skinny you know, almanac. But the thing is, if you had a really thick almanac, then you couldn't pay off the ooh-la-la joke later on, right? You can't do that. So I get why those things happen. And for me, those are forgivable, and I can have fun saying this is definitely not 
the best, but it doesn't need to be. It's like kind of poking my younger brother. I can say, you know, I love you, but I can do this to you because you're my brother and, you know, we're that close. I we're still talk talking about it 32 oh. years later, and that says yeah. something right there. I mean, e even if it's not a perfect movie, we're still analyzing it, talking about it, watching it, and dissecting it. And that, I think, is a a plus for it <laughs> in its own way. For sure. For sure. Well, I'll tell you something else that's a plus for me is anytime I get to see Elizabeth Shue on the screen. <laughs> I yeah. fell in love with her oh, in Karate Kid. I fell more in love with her in Cocktail, and I was not going to complain seeing her as Marty's girlfriend in Back to the Future 2 and 3, although it was a little jarring when we get a recreation of the last scene from the original movie, and here's Elizabeth Shue saying, hey, stranger, wanna, you know, let's go for a ride. And I'm like, I'll go. Marty, you stay here. But at the same time, I, I was a little kind of put off because I was used to the original Jennifer. I think, though, for whatever reason, the recasting worked for me in the same way that Michael J. Fox and his casting worked in switching out for Eric Stoltz. I think Elizabeth Shue has some really funny moments here. She is on full display in the movie Adventures in Babysitting, her eccentricness, and I think that that's replicated here. So watching her interact with Doc in the time machine and, and just kind of hitting him up with all these questions, you know, do we have a big house? What's going on? Oh my gosh, I'm gonna get to see my wedding dress. Watching her against Marty, who's like, wow, <laughs> wow. Because she doesn't get these ramifications. She doesn't get what's going on. So I think she was a really great casting choice. Again, I have no idea why she, why Adam, uh, what was the actress's name? Remind me again. Uh, Claudia Wells. Thank you. Yeah. I have no idea why Claudia Wells was not in the second and third. It may have been for, you know, casting reasons or you know budget reasons or contract reasons but i like the the recast it could have been anybody else and i like that it was elizabeth shoe yeah i mean claudia wells uh played jennifer parker in the first film but it, she was actually replacing melora hardin who was the jennifer parker against eric stoltz in the original version of back to the future so claudia wells took the job from Melora Hardin. Melora Hardin, of course, is Jan from The Office. So if you can imagine a young version of Jan playing uh, Jennifer Parker in the original Back to the Future, that's what it would have been. And maybe in the alternate reality uh, scene in Fringe, the, the audience has got to see that version. But yeah, they because uh, the story goes that because she was too tall for Michael J. Fox, they also decided to recast uh, Melora Hardin with with uh, Claudia Wells because she was almost exactly the same height as Michael J. Fox. And they, they didn't feel audiences would accept uh, a, a, a woman who was like three or four inches taller <laughs> than Michael J. Fox. So I don't, I, yeah, it's just, that's what they did. But so here we are again with it being recast, as you said, and the, the reason apparently that she has given that Claudia Wells has given is that her mother, um, was very sick at the time and uh, she needed to care for her and she made 
uh, a choice that I think many of us would make if we were in that circumstance. And she moved in with her mother and, and cared for her, I think, for a number of years. So, And it took, I think, probably 20 years or more, maybe 25 years for her to even talk about the movie. Probably It was probably a bit of a sore spot for her as an actress because it really was giving up a, a huge a huge part in a, in a trilogy. And around 2010, I believe, she started doing appearances in documentaries and, and at screenings and film festivals. And maybe enough time had passed that she felt she could sort of reflect on it and sort of embrace the fans of the original film and just show up. As, as I mentioned in the last uh, episode, uh, in 2015, I got to meet her along with Christopher Lloyd and Bob Gale at that 30th anniversary screening at the Washington West Film Festival. So it was kind of neat to see you know, some of the original uh, cast and crew from the first film. But yeah, here we are with, with Elizabeth Shue. And I... I have to say that this is one of the few things about the film that always kind of just felt a little off to me. And I, like you, really love her as an actress. She was so good in, in Adventures in Babysitting, which I think was the year prior to this or maybe two years, 87, 88. Yeah, something like that. And of course, The Karate Kid, as you mentioned, and, and so many other great great roles. And maybe that was why I had a problem with it, because maybe she was a little too recognizable to be replacing another actress. And we obviously know from seeing her in other roles that she's not a redhead, <laughs> like Claudia Wells was naturally. So they obviously either dyed her hair or put a wig on her head. And I guess all of that just kind of ruined the illusion for a little bit there for me, because I knew she was replacing somebody else. So if maybe if they had cast a more unknown actress, it might have been a little more seamless perhaps i don't know but anytime you have to recast an actor it's going to be a little jarring at first sight right uh you have like kirstie alley in star trek 2 being recast uh by robin curtis uh in star trek 3 and 4 so anytime that happens audiences are going to be a little kind of wait what just happened here who is that right so it's uh it's it's unfortunate but understandable but she did a good job i think after rewatching it multiple times, I, I fell in love with her version of Jennifer, which is very different than than Claudia's. Uh, and thankfully, she's largely unimportant, really, to the plot. They really just needed to find a way to kind of get her in and out of the plot. And she's really only in the first 30 minutes, 35 minutes, I would say. And then again, they find a creative solution to kind of get her out of the picture so that the dynamic duo of Marty and Dot can take on the rest of the film together. And I think that's what Bob Gale really wanted with the sequels, was it to be a continuation of Marty and Doc. And so he always, I think, regretted putting Jennifer in the car at the end of the first film, because he never knew he was going to actually make that movie. So having her in the car meant she has to be a part of the future scenes in some way, shape or form. And they had to kind of write her out in a sense without writing her out. They had to, you know, I don't know, he like hypnotize what does he do he like puts her to sleep with some kind of uh he tranked her because she's a tranked her yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, yeah and then she and but but that does also open up some of the best scenes that she gets which is where she wakes up in marty and her future house and uh and and of course in just witnesses and her her family her her children and sees her old self. <laughs> That's a great, a great shot for me. And it always will be when she and her older version go, I'm young, I'm old. And they, they both faint. So I, I, I'm a little mixed on this re recasting, but as I said, over time, it, 
it has grown on me and I've learned to accept and appreciate what she brought to the part. And I, but it, like I said, I think it, it would be, it, it, will, it would, would be interesting to know what the film would have, how the film would have worked w- with the original actress. Would it have been, would those scenes have been more serious? Because also Elizabeth Shue was more of a comedic actress as well. So at this point she was really, you know, she had some dramatic roles, but this was definitely jumping on the comedy from Adventures in Babysitting and kind of taking that same uh, approach as a, as a character. I don't have anything to add, really, to all of that, because that is as about as in-depth of an analysis as you're going to get on this recasting. I think in anywhere podcast, in all of podcastum, that was awesome. <laughs> that was so thorough. I personally actually didn't even care, notice, to be honest. I mean, I think Elizabeth's shoes more attractive to me personally. So there's that. Yay. But I don't think that Jennifer has that much of a role in this film. And I don't think she had that much of a role in the first film. She's never been somebody I think about or care about when I, you know, go down my treat, my list of hierarchy of back to the future characters, you know, it's quite a ways before I get to her. So for me as a casual watcher, I don't think that it really even, you know, it didn't resonate. didn't even, register for me that there was a change made it worked didn't bother me liked it and i went went ahead and just kept going so here's a couple of mind-blowing facts uh one for me recently but one maybe for you guys that laura harden also played katie the fun girlfriend of doug masters in iron eagle thought that was pretty interesting last time i watched oh look at that it's jan when she's not dating Michael <laughs> Scott, that's great. She's that's... dating an aviator. <laughs> and the other thing I have not is... seen that film in a while. Oh gosh. It's a favorite of me and Aaron's. I don't know that we have we haven't yeah. covered that one, have we, Aaron? Iron Eagle? No, we haven't covered that one. I don't I think we might have. I don't know. We talked about covering it at one point. I don't think maybe we didn't. No, I, I don't think we, we have. I think we both we, we did talk about it. Johnny watching it in the uh yes. Cobra Kai, I think. But <laughs> yes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But the other Fun fact that blew my mind this week when when we were talking a little bit about you know, pre-gaming for this movie was that Back to the Future as a franchise is apparently a let's recast whoever we need to. <laughs> and I didn't know that Crispin Glover was recast, the the young version of George McFly. So watching the movie, how well the editors take previously cut scenes with him in it and i think there's only one rake one scene where you can sort of see his face it's where he and lorraine are talking to marty just before he jets back in time but you don't notice because there's no close-ups and i thought wow i didn't even notice that until adam you pointed that out yeah that's pretty fantastic i had no idea that he had been recast so you know what if it's back to the future why not just recast people yeah yeah it's it's kind of, uh, I mean, I guess, passage. yeah, <laughs> they, they're not afraid of it. So that's a, I guess that's a, a plus, but they, like you said, they were very creative in everything they did between, uh, prosthetics to kind of make him look more like Crispin Glover. It was it, it, actor, uh, the actor's name was Jeffrey Weissman who was recast. And obviously in the future scenes, they turned him upside down and put a lot of makeup on him. So you weren't going to really tell. And he did a pretty good job, this actor, at kind of 
recreating the the voice of uh, of Crispin Glover as George McFly. And yeah, all those scenes back in 1955, they just used creative angling. Um, sometimes he was out of focus or it was just the back of his head or or uh, like you said, in the in that hallway, it kind of rack focuses just as he's about to say something and you hear him say it. But then Biff comes into frame. So they did a really inventive job of inter, sort of intercutting. So there was a, there were a couple shots of footage from the first film that they re, repurposed. Uh, but then the rest of it was all recreated with this other actor. And it's kind of remarkable. But surprisingly, the story didn't end there. He was, of course, unhappy, Crispin Glover, about this happening. He was actually offered the part, but... He wasn't offered enough money, apparently. He was offered half of what all the other returning actors were getting for his his role. So he was, I think, um, perhaps rightfully upset and demanding more money. And the, the, the filmmakers and studio decided, well, we don't really need you that much, so we're going to recast you. And apparently when he saw the film and he saw his likeness was being recreated, his voice was being recreated uh, for that part, he sued and... It was settled out of court and he basically won. And there's now clauses in SAG-AFTRA contracts that prevent this type of thing being done without the actor's permission. So it another another thing that happened as a result of this film, uh, it, it has influenced and changed the way films are are made ever since as a result of this of this lawsuit and what they what they chose to do. But it's a, it's just fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you can if you haven't seen it in a while, now you can go back and rewatch it and look and just look at all the shots of George McFly. And you'll be like, wow, they, you're right. It's it's not him. But I never noticed. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was really the big subject of the film, the really what drives the plot. The second entry does what the first one does. And it actually doubles down on the quote, what if we messed up the past? deliberately question you know what if we made a choice for our own personal gain and as i was preparing for our discussion i thought about the altruism of the first film and how it contrasts with marty selfishly wanting to kind of use the future for his own personal gain and how that can affect more than just one thing we specifically talked on the last episode how the choices he made throughout the first film were either by accident, either because he was reacting to something or with the intent that he wanted to save the future. He really wanted to preserve his family, preserve his parents' relationship. Obviously, he was doing self-preservation because he wouldn't have been alive had they not gotten together. But Back to the Future 2 takes what I think we thought about after Back to the Future and what we think about if we ever got a chance to travel into the future is if we had a chance to know what was going to happen, how could we make that work for us in a way that's financially, emotionally, socially more beneficial? And what we get is what I think is almost a dramatic tonal shift that's almost intentional. So we get this optimistic, futuristic world, even though the reasons for being there are something's got to be done about your kids, stopping a crime, stopping a bad mistake. It's almost like we're rehashing a little bit of Back to the Future. 
Marty is trying to fix something that hasn't happened yet, or he's trying to restore something that that may happen because of a bad choice. What ends up happening is that alternate 1985 that, frankly, is pretty dark, but that comes as a result of him making a selfish decision to use the time machine for financial gain as opposed to what Doc wants to use it for, which is to travel through time. And watching that, I thought, this is the movie that I think the audience wished for and got. And it's also the movie that I'm glad we didn't get in the first entry. So the second entry really does kind of give us our cake and eat it too plot. And I think while the future can seem kind of hokey and the alternate 1985 can seem way post-apocalyptic at times, I think it's a really great visual contrast in what Zemeckis and company are trying to show, which is they're not preaching, but they're saying, be careful what you wish for and what you try to do because your choices do have consequences. And maybe they are preaching a little bit of when you try to do things for your own selfish ambition, it does affect more than just you. So at the very least, there's a little bit of that that comes out of this film. I don't think of it on a deeper level like this is a great morality play necessarily, although there is definitely some of that in here. But I do think it is one of those movies that uses big action, great special effects to tell this story of be careful and know what you're actually getting yourself into. The effect of that I thought was really kind of cool. Like you, Adam, I thought the future was cool, but I really got into the alternate timeline as I got older because I understood that more. As a kid, this is yeah. probably why I enjoyed Back to the Future 2 more than the first one because everything was neat. Everything was fun and colorful and wow, is this how the future is going to be? I love hoverboards, even though they don't work on water. And when when you get to that dark, danky 1985, it's done in a way that really feels kind of subtle. The way we get introduced to that. I don't remember Boris being on these windows when he drops Jennifer off at her house. And then he tries to get into his backyard through the fence that is normally not locked. And then he jumps into a window only to find that there is a young girl in there that is not supposed to be there, whose dad does not like him being there and tells him that with four swings of a bat. And then we get into that craziness that is 1985 of the, the Biff future or the Biff 1985. And so I thought seeing these two contrasted really did kind of visually tell that story of the butterfly effect and how making a choice even if that choice was stolen by somebody else it could have ramifications similar to what marty was experiencing yeah i mean it's basically if you do the right thing as in the first movie you might be rewarded and you, you, your parents might be cooler you might they might be thinner and they might be more financially successful. I mean, that's basically the sort of the the end result of the first film. You know, he he doesn't try to do anything selfish self selfishly in the first film. He really is just trying to correct what he broke and get back, and not 
change anything. He does inadvertently change things for the better, but he's not, that's not his intention. In the second one, he fully intends to take that sports almanac back in time and change his future for the better. And as a result, it literally ruins his life <laughs> and everyone, you know, like his father is dead. You know, his mother is married to Biff. I mean, this is like, if this isn't a morality play, I'm not sure what it, <laughs> what is it all. It really is pretty much saying if you act in your own self-interest and try to cheat in life, this is what you're going to get. You're going to, it's, it's not going to end well for you. But, uh, but I think, yeah, I think ultimately the lesson of this film in particular from doc is not to mess with the past or the future. You know, he, he invented the time machine as he says often for to sort of expand the human mind to learn about the pitfalls, the perils, you know, he, he just wants to, see it see the world see see the past see the future from sort of a scientific eye but not to actually change or alter anything whereas i think this film is sort of showing that despite doc's best intentions inventing the delorean time machine he realizes throughout this movie that human nature will always try to corrupt the time machine its power it, that most people will be unable to resist the temptation to do something with that power. And so he constantly says throughout the film, I have to destroy that infernal machine. I have to dismantle it. He's just, he's realizing after this adventure that this is it, that once we're done, once we fix everything, we have to rip this thing apart. And obviously it ultimately does get destroyed. And we'll talk about that more uh, in the next episode. But it's, uh, I think that is the lesson of the movie is that, as cool as a time machine would be, we really, humanity can't be entrusted with one. And uh, clearly even our hero, uh, Marty McFly, was tempted. And he's the person that we're supposed to relate to the most. So I, I, I would argue and I would agree that that's probably the case. So hopefully we never do invent the ability to travel through time. Because if we do, I think uh, we're just going to ruin <laughs> ruin everything no it'll be fine you just have time to <laughs> trust me i just watched it go. again yeah just call up jcvd and we'll be all right no, yeah no i i agree i think to, for me this is the best part of this movie and the best part about the sequels in general is this through line and this exploration of what happens when you mess with it i think i made the statement during our last episode about how i love specifically the fact that it's unintentional and it's accidental and they're not going back in time on purpose with a reason to do so it just kind of happens and then they have to deal with it and try to get back and so that part about that that makes that so special is fun to then expand on and see what would happen but this is the natural story that we usually get told in movies and in stories is like what happens when people are trying to mess with it and how it affects things, because it's, it's interesting. It's entertaining for us to watch and see changes made to a timeline. And, and that butterfly effect is, I think it's just human nature. It's intriguing to wonder about our, it's like a choose your own adventure book, right? Like you always wonder what would have happened even in your own life. Every decision we actually make, we can, time machine or not, we could think about like the alternate paths we would have gone on had we, I mean, major things like not gotten married to that person or not gone on that vacation or not, you know, said yes to that job or whatever. 
um, it doesn't take the time machine to, to have those questions. And so this just, you know, gives us a reason to get into that and have fun with it. And I love, love, love so much the idea of the sports almanac. I think that is part of what helps me to enjoy this more than I would otherwise is that that's the hook because being a sports guy, it makes perfect sense. Being a guy who loves to sports bet or would love to sports bet if Washington would legalize it and let me use an app to do it and not have to go to a stupid casino. I, I, it's probably better for me that we can't, but that being said, I think it's like so natural. I mean, who would not immediately have that thought? I mean, that is yet another grounding part of Marty's character for us. The way he, we talked about that, how we could relate to Marty so well, and that is something that's relatable. And yet he isn't corrupted by it. He doesn't ultimately make the choice to want to go. He, he thinks about it, right? He considers it, but he's not actively doing the thing. And I love that because that's how I think our best reality case or best case scenario would work out. You know, we would be tempted. We may want to think that we wouldn't, but we would instantly be tempted. Whether it's a sports almanac or any number of other things, the ability to change things and make your life better with a wave of a wand or a single trip and a single little change, who would not, you know, be just completely enamored with that? And so I think highly of Marty when he doesn't, you know, to me, it's not a negative that he makes the first step of getting the almanac and really thinking hard about it. It's the fact that he doesn't. And yes, it's interesting too, how it kind of leads to this accidental thing where Biff over, is it Biff or Griff? One of, one of them overhears and ends up getting the almanac, right? And, and being able to, I guess it's Biff and being able to go and, and take advantage of that. And we get to see the ramifications. And, you know, we get to see the ramifications based on the villain too, and based on a, a person with an impure personality in the beginning. And so you wonder, like, how would it look differently if it was Marty? To me, that's curious. You know, I, I don't doubt that things would go poorly and be messed up. I don't doubt that things would be different. I hesitate to say messed up because I get to thinking really heady when we talk about time travel, but is it really messed up? Is it really wrong if it's different? It's just the way that the choices went. That doesn't make it incorrect necessarily. It just makes it a different timeline. You know, if it was incorrect, then none of these Marvel shows we're watching could be any fun because they'd all be quote wrong, <laughs> but they're not wrong. They're just different. But if it, Marty was the one to do this, I do wonder what that difference in future would look like because he has different aspirations than Biff. He, what he would do with the money and what he would aim for with power. Now, we don't know because power corrupts, but based on Marty's character, you have to believe that he would not lead the world into the destruction that Biff, you know, does for his own pleasure. Um, and that's fascinating. So it's cool to see and to think about and just that whole scenario. It, that is what keeps me engaged in this movie, even when I don't necessarily love every moment to moment piece of dialogue or campy joke or whatever. Like I, that idea and that through line 
is so fascinating and it's so cool the way we move from the first film all the way to the last film um exploring that that's it's kind of unique i don't think we could have a time travel movie without that kind of plot at some point and i'm glad that it came when it did because as we'll talk about in the third entry it has its own type of charm its own type of story that it's trying to tell which feels refreshing it's not necessarily repetition what i think is really interesting about really fun about this is that it it this plot allows thomas wilson to go on full display i think if i could pull if i could walk into the lot of back to the future and pull one thing from back to the future to take home with me for the second entry it would be biff's cane i think that's phenomenal the fact that that character trait of him of knocking on giving noogies essentially to people hello hello and then doing it with a cane it's so perfect he's still doing it as an old man but i love seeing thomas wilson play this old man and then playing this over-the-top grandson i guess i guess griffith's his grandson yeah and seeing how the the tannin mcfly rivalry still exists in 2015 and as we'll see it maybe it finds its origins in 1885 and back to the future three i'm not sure but that that rivalry is still at least a thread of it exists in all three movies i think that's really great and thomas wilson just sells it we see him in a more expansive role in 1955 in this back half of the movie that's another thing that i thought was really great about back to the future 2 is that we got to see the other side we got to see this widening of the lens of 1955 hill valley what was taking place when biff was getting his car back from the mechanic after crashing into a manure truck what was he doing at the dance in between when he was bullying george mcfly and trying to harass lorraine we get to see all that. and really i think this is this is a tom wilson not driven movie but i think it's a tom wilson heavy movie because i'd like to believe that the fans were like biff's great can we see more of him and i think zemeckis and and gail all the folks involved were like we need to use him more we only got a little bit of him so getting to see him in all those different roles doing what he did and really keeping a, a sense of independence with all four or five of those characters was pretty phenomenal again editing is is a good chunk of that it's almost as if you're doing audio narration for an audiobook you have to do all these different characters and i think wilson doing biff and griff and older biff it really sells me that he's different people so watching him do this all the way through i thought was really great and i love the other elements of 1955 that we get to see seeing strickland kicking back with some whiskey reading through a dirty magazine and still keeping that authoritarian element of his personality looking out and peeking through the blinds saying it's are things things still up and up and up i'm gonna i'm gonna have to go down there and check it out seeing 
different perspectives. 1985 Marty, I guess Marty B, on the rafters looking down at Marty A doing his 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 song and being like, oh, he's pretty good. You know, just those types of things are really fun to be able to see yourself and go, wow, I really I really do know how to play the guitar. I'm pretty good. Seeing Doc in that really special quiet moment with his older self and just having this interesting conversation with himself uh, and finishing that off where Doc from 55 says, see you in the future. And then he goes, or in the past. I, I thought being able to expand on the world that we knew from 19, or excuse me, from Back to the Future was a really great choice. We weren't asking for it, but it allowed us to open up that world a little bit more and connect some dots maybe that we weren't really asking to connect, but really seeing how all this is interconnected. I love that Marty gets to see his dad deck Biff twice, <laughs> once from the 1955 Marty A and now from Marty B. So all those things really work together to take the second half of the movie to its conclusion when we finally get to the Hill Valley Storm, which, by the way, is the crux for leading into the second movie, well, leading to the end of the first movie, and now it's leading into the beginning of the third movie. It is the moment that causes a decision to, that needs to be made. You know, one's going to the future, one's going to the past, but the Hill Valley lightning storm essentially is the crux of these two events that lead to a bigger story, or they lead to the conclusion of one and now the beginning of a, of a third one. So I thought all that really worked well for me. Yeah, and doesn't he, he even says, like, it's amazing that Biff would have chose that exact date in 1955. And he's it, like, it could be the temporal nexus point or for the universe or something. But you're right, the lightning storm could be an element to that. It, without that lightning, there's no way that the DeLorean could have traveled back, back to 1985 in the first film or back to 1885 at the end of this film. So, yeah, there's something very special about that date in in uh, the Back to the Future uh, timeline. But but yeah, I, I can't agree with you more about uh, Thomas Wilson. And a fun fact, he actually also voiced Gertrude Tannen, his grandmother. So when you hear, Biff, Biff, oh turn off the lights in the garage, that's also Thomas Wilson doing the voice. It's an uncredited uh, part. But yeah, it's it, so that just shows you that Zemeckis went all in with having these actors like they had Michael J. Fox play his own daughter in the future. They just went all in letting these actors go wild with every part that was connected to their uh, to their sort of lineage, if you will. And I, I, again, it's it's fun. It is it the choice I would have made if I was making this movie. Maybe not. But I, I like um, I like how it turned out. And and I agree with you that all these extra little moments that we get in this film really help to they first and foremost they retell the events of the first film for anybody that may not have seen the film in a while and kind of needs a refresher so that's a very helpful like plot element uh, plot device if you will to get the the audience up to speed and make sure they understand the stakes and everything that needs to be accomplished but it's also just really fun to see these these additional scenes and like you said, the way it's cut together, the way they re recreated 
the look of the of Hill Valley of the the high school everything it's like spot on it's flawless like you really you, it almost looks like these are scenes that were cut from the original film like they didn't use them and they're just reinserting them here uh, in part two but they were all reshot everything was recreated it actually took them uh, they said two years to build all the sets and recreate everything to shoot them back to back. They spent two years of pre-production getting everything, uh, the, the future Hill Valley, recreating 1955 Hill Valley, shooting the, you know, creating the old West version for, um, which is at a, was, was shot in Northern California for the third film. So it, it just, it's a great example of a film where everything, all, a ton of the work was accomplished in pre-production and then, it all pays off uh, remarkably uh, when you get to see it all on film. But yeah, it's every character in this film that we get to learn more about uh, adds something more to the film. And I think that's really uh, a really important aspect of what makes this film work for me is that these are likable characters. They got the casting so right the first time that why not give us more? Why not give us... Um, like you said, with Strickland, uh, or even with uh, Leah Thompson, she has a few great additional scenes that she uh, shot for 1955. She ha has those great scenes in the alternate 1985 that are just, you know, where she's all made up to look older. But, um, but by the way, if you see Leah Thompson today in an interview, she looks, she's older than she was supposed to be in these films and she looks so great. So they, they didn't really do her justice. <laughs> I think uh, they were, they were aging a lot of these actors far more than I think they really needed to be aged, but I guess they needed just to make sure audiences realize that this was the old version and the young version they were really trying to just you know get the point across but uh, yeah I, it's there's I, I really agree with everything you said about that uh, these these extra scenes actually would be fun to see it cut into the first film it, it would be it, like an interesting experiment to see a version of the first film where you cut into uh into place all the additional um points of view that we got in the second film and just to sort of see the whole chain of events play out, uh, it'd just be an interesting kind of uh, creative experiment to see how it all would work together in one film. Before we get to our conclusion, I wanted to touch on the future. Not the future of the podcast or anything like that. The future that is 2015, which is actually the past for us now. Watching this movie, for me, is somewhat hilariously jarring because 1989 me saw 2015 and all the stuff that was happening that was portrayed as like wow the future is going to be amazing we're going to have flying cars and hoverboards and jackets that talk to us and self-dry why would that even be a thing and then 2015 comes and the big question that i think was asked especially when the 30th anniversary hit was what actually came true and honestly I don't know that a lot of it did. I mean, we were getting to self-driving cars. We were getting close to that. We sort of have hoverboards, but not necessarily like Mattel would make, apparently, in 2015. But I did find that there were some interesting parts of 2015 in the movie that felt idealistic. Like, if we could, would this be good? 
it makes me laugh to watch the scenes in the cafe 80s and the what if statement there is well everybody's going to be max hedrum because max hedrum was the thing my son has a stutter and one night we were talking and i used a max hedrum voice and he thought that i was making fun of him it's like don't do that don't make fun of me and i said i'm not making fun of you there's this character named max hedrum and i had to pull up a youtube video to show him what i was doing because his character is just kind of weird so to to see ronald reagan or michael jackson as a max hedrum clone was really hilarious and to think obviously cafe 80s were going back nostalgically but everything in that cafe seemed to be kind of this is what was cool subjectively and i find myself going what would i have put in a cafe 80s well i don't know i mean some of that stuff would i wouldn't have pepsi products that's for sure i would not do that i would have coke products and coke products only because that's just wrong you can't do that to me i would also have better arcade games than wild gunman i'd probably have a star wars empire strikes back slash return of the jedi arcade machine i think adam you would agree with me on that i'd have pinball yes Mm -hmm. And I would probably want to have MTV playing, at least mm. in some regard. Now, Max Hedrum was part of that MTV generation, and I understand that. So I think I would keep him. I don't know that I would make every major 80s icon a version of him. I think it would be yeah. that would be a little too much. But I wanted to pose the question to you guys. What about this 2015 in the movie? stood out to you what were some if you could take some trinkets home some things that haven't come to fruition or probably won't come to fruition what would you want to pull from this that you feel like would be fun to have or that would actually be somewhat beneficial to how we live our lives today well who wouldn't want the mattel hoverboard i mean come on that's i it, there's a funny story too about when the film came out Robert Zemeckis was doing an interview about the hoverboards and he was talking very matter-of-factly about, and he was really joking, but people didn't realize this about how the hoverboards, oh yeah, they're, they're great. But uh, we got a, a lot of parents got, uh, got mad at us because they're so dangerous. So we had to have them pulled off the market and people thought this was real because the film did such a good job of presenting this, th these scenes of him, Hovering around on this board, the audiences didn't realize not that it was uh, it was visual effects and and props and sets. So there was a number of people for years that thought they were real and didn't realize that it's, this was this was all just movie magic. But uh, as you said, they've been slowly over the last three decades working on because of this movie largely working on types of hoverboards, and there's been some experimentation with actual magnetic boards where you could hover around but inside almost like a roller skating rink type environment where with this a specific type of of surface you could actually hover you know uh, a few centimeters off the ground but nothing nothing like we was shown in this film but uh, uh some other fun things i i always thought the black and decker hydrator was a cool idea where you hydrate a pizza in a few seconds and it you know it's like a little tiny pizza hut pizza and then you press a button and it 
bubbles up to a full-sized pizza that you can all enjoy. I thought that was cool. I think that was like a little bit of a playoff of how popular and new microwave ovens were at that time. So everyone was was nuking their their meals at the uh, in 1989. It was a new a new trend. So this was sort of their idea of where that type of home cooking or home pre- meal prep might go <laughs> 30 years into the future. But uh, there actually were, and you mentioned how there a lot of the major things didn't didn't come true obviously but there were a few smaller things such as the there were like news gathering drones we have drones everywhere now you know delivering packages and and uh and also capturing footage for the news in the mcfly home they have a a widescreen tv which was not a uh, a thing at the time of this movie coming out so they accurately predicted 16 by 9 televisions and multi you know kind of multi-channel picture in picture and video conferencing so there are some some smaller things so maybe more of the stuff that you see in the their home and not so much in the the town square where everything is is happening but uh yeah it's it, it's a it's a fun future as i said earlier it's an optimistic future there's not it's not the blade runner post-apocalyptic future it's more of a wishful thinking like, wouldn't it be nice? It's almost the future that people hoped for in like the 30s at the World's Fair. You know, like, this is the f- city of the future, you know, flying cars and everybody is uh, is healthy. And, you know, Doc gets a goes to a re- rejuvenation clinic and to take, was it, 40 years off his, you know, give him for added 40 years to his life and they replaced his colon and his spleen. You know, so everyone's healthy, everyone's, but we're still making mistakes, right? And that's the whole point is that the future might be bright in this reality from a technological standpoint, but people like Griff are still bad and people like Marty's son can still make mistakes and ruin their lives. So I think it's the people factor that doesn't change, even if the world around them advances, human nature will always stay the same. But uh, one, one, one other fun thing I, I, I didn't realize and only noticed for the first time, maybe you guys noticed it, but did you notice who one of the two boys was playing the Wild Gunman game in the Cafe 80s? I did not. You did not. It's Elijah Wood in his very first oh, on screen. What? Yes. Wow. Frodo <laughs> yeah. making his yep. big debut. I was like, how do I know that kid? And I was like, oh my God, it's Elijah Wood. Is it Elijah Wood? And I had to quickly Google it. And I was like, it's Elijah Wood, his first on-screen appearance before like what radio flyer and whatever else he did in the early nineties. Yeah, exactly. So I'll have to go back and watch that. I didn't notice that. He has like one line and like the other kid has most of the lines, but he's, he's there (laughs) with that weird hat. Yeah. Does he say it's like a baby's toy? Is that his line? I think that's the other kid. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, and who you I don't have to use your hands. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Anyway, so check that out. <laughs> okay. Interesting. I, I, the pizza for me was probably number one. Honestly, uh, I that there's just something that appeals to the inner fat kid in all of us. The <laughs> the lazy simplicity of that is just phenomenal. Like talk about an it's an everyday usefulness thing right it's not sometimes it's cool to have a cover hoverboard and go play on one kind of thing it's mm-hmm. like legitimately would benefit you in almost every single meal that you wanted to make or could probably not healthy obviously but so that the that the hydrating food or whatever that was awesome 
the self-lacing shoes I've always thought would be awesome, but not in the way that they're depicted in this movie, because as I said, everything is goofy and ridiculous and I don't need sneakers with like this gigantic blossoming opening at the top of my high top or whatever. I don't even know <laughs> what was up with that style, but just like give me my normal, you know, the pair of Vans with <laughs> self-lacing and I'll be good to go. So I like that. Uh, I think I actually would push back Patrick on you and saying absolutely not Pepsi. And only because I, I'm not pushing back on your personal preference being Coke. Cause mine is two. And I think Coke is by, like I, by far it's Coke, Dr. Pepper. And then I don't know, fall off a cliff Pepsi, but the pers at the time, the culture was all about Pepsi. Pepsi was the thing that was hip. And it was yeah. trying to break in with cool commercials and interesting ideas. And, you know, it was the one choice of a new bat. generation. <laughs> yes. So that I think that's why it got chosen and why it makes perfect sense to be in their cafe 80s and, and really to be in anybody's, you know, because of that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I would put in mind. I don't remember that time so much as you like, my memory is just not that clear of what I was into in the eighties heavily, but I, I like the idea of the changing of the arcade. I would probably put one of the ones from pizza hut. I remember those so fondly, like the ones that have like 10 or Neo geo machines or whatever they have 10 or 15 different games in them. Play choice um, 10. That, yeah. Play choice. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Cause that yeah. seems like something you'd want in a cafe, right? Like a pizza mm -hmm. hut. You'd want something to have multiple different um, options there. Uh, but for me, yeah, I, it's idealistic, I guess it's, I don't know. It's, it's a weird future. It, it's got all of this technological upgrades to it, but then everybody is silly and goofy and walking and, and it's almost, it's almost regression in a way, like they, the way they act, they don't even act normal for the eighties. They act so over the top exaggerated maybe they're making a comment there that you know over reliance on technology and you know makes you <laughs> revert back to being a caveman because things are too easy for you i don't know <laughs> but <laughs> but uh yeah it's a it's a weird future that they crafted there it's so unlike the way that we normally see the future it, it makes sense it's totally in line with what people in the eighties thought and seventies or whatever thought the future would look like, as you mentioned, Adam, it's all Tomorrowland. It's all, you know, flying cars and, you know, somewhat upgraded technology, like an internet type device or something. And, you know, usually it was your appliances being made simpler to make your life easier. So that's all there, but usually it's, it's much more serious. It, it's just weird to see it in such a comedic way. It just throws me off every time. I can't lie, but yeah, it's a, it, I, it's interesting uh, to think about what it would look like. And, you know, to think about what we would say now would be in our future. You know, if we, so what is it? What did you say this year was 89 Patrick? Was yeah. Was so, yeah. so we're talking like 15 years difference. No, 25 year difference. Right. So 2046 versus 
1995 right now for us is like kind of the 25 on either side. You know, how much have we changed from since 95? I think quite a freaking bit, you know? So it really is interesting to think about like how much further could we go in the next 25 years? I don't know. I bet somebody's going to make that movie though. Just don't call it Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys see who directed Jaws 19 on the marquee? <laughs> no. <laughs> Was it Spielberg? Max Spielberg. Max his Spielberg. son. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> Of course he did. Yep. It was his young <laughs> it was his young son in 1989 and uh he did not pursue a career in directing so that was also a bad prediction. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the other bad predictions was that fax machines would be like the oh. way in which you communicate instantly. But yeah. I do see the telecon, the tele the uh, the visual communication the Skype, the what yeah. we're doing, the Discord. Yeah, exactly. That has, that has become a thing. So it's fun to think what did make it and what didn't make it. But I think what's interesting about seeing the future from a perspective is that we imprint what we think is going to be valuable based on what's valuable right now. Mm -hmm. Case in point, Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. Oh, that's going to be the drink. I think it's obviously product placement because Frito-Lay has its hands in Pepsi and pizza hut so there's going to be some product placement there but it makes sense and i think it was probably i'd like to believe it was driven primarily by pepsi and we're like hey can we use pizza hut as well i think one of my favorite lines is when young marty mcfly who couldn't be any lazier you know marty jr he yells to his grandmother grandma lorraine can you just shove it in my mouth? Like, <laughs> yes, it's so stupid. Like it's that small, and yeah, I I just thought that was yeah that kind of speaks to the apathy of that generation. Aaron, you made a good point that maybe there is too much reliance on technology that we're seeing. We don't get enough time spent in the future to really kind of mull over and figure all that out. But that one moment where he's yelling at the fruit tray to come down. And he goes, fruit place, fruit place. Yeah. And he hits the thing. Like, retract. Yeah, retract. <laughs> Just, these things, how we're getting mad at automation. Yeah. I think that's kind of a predictable thing, something that's come out. We, we, we get so frustrated with my phone because it's not fast enough or because when I Google text somebody like Aaron and it says a different word than what I go, I'm like, why are you not doing this? When I could just type it and it would go just as fast, but that's too slow for my brain. So I thought the future was, was fun. I think that's always something that's going to be interesting to think about is what the future could look like and how we imprint our own personal desires, our own personal things of importance, almost like a, like a digital time machine, like a wish list of, will this be important in 15 years? I think that's what time machines do or time, time capsules, what they do almost in a backwards effect. Are these things going to feel nostalgic? when we open them up in 20 years or 30 years. And I think, and I think the, yeah. And the, in the alleyway, if you notice in the background, there were bundles and bundles of like optical media, like giant laser discs and CDs all like wrapped up, like they were being discarded. And I was, I never even thought about this. Was that sort of their prediction that physical media would be dead by 2015, <laughs> that people would no longer, like they were, this was all garbage that needed to be hauled away in the alleyway. And, 
it makes you wonder, was that an accurate prediction that we're kind of moving in that direction now with everything streaming? So I, I'm still a fan of physical media personally, but I, I can see that the trend is definitely going in that direction where fewer and fewer people are buying, you know, Blu-ray discs or, or 4K Ultra HD discs anymore, uh, sadly, because I, I prefer them. <laughs> it's, if I have uh, the room, if, yeah, if you have yeah. the room, go for it. I, did, I Exactly. I have the room. I need no, my I, cave times too with my pinball machine. Seriously. <laughs> well, one quick yep. thing I want to just throw my love at the, the technical side of, of this movie. The special effects are on point, especially for a movie that came out in 1989. The use of doubles, the use of split screen, I thought was so fantastic. Silvestri's score on point yet again. What a great way to open the movie. The title sequence is really just a continue it's it's our journey into the future even though it's instantaneous for doc and the gang doc and marty and jennifer it's nice to be able to have that opening set of credits with sylvester score just going boom boom in our ears running us through the storms and the clouds and stuff like that and then we crash into the future i thought that was great but i i really really admire the special effects team for this as hokey as parts of it are admittedly there's a lot here that i think is worthy of a film class in how to use practical effects practically in combination with a little bit of cgi i think it was appropriate when practical effects were used and at the time being able to maximize those resources really did make the movie better i agree and i think the opening as you mentioned I actually love that line. I love how they, re they recreate that whole end sequence and then it cuts to Biff walking out like, hey, Marty, Marty. And he's like, what the hell is going on here? And there's that drum beat and then the music kicks in. I love that opening. I think it's a great way to basically to tell you right away, uh-oh, Biff, Biff is going to be a problem in this movie. And it, it, you're you're given that that little nugget right in the very beginning. And and he certainly is. He is the he becomes far more of a villain, if you will, than he ever was in the first. He was just like, a, you know, a bully in the first film. But here he he literally becomes like an evil megalomaniac. And there's one funny thing I noticed, too, when Doc holds up the newspaper in alternate 1985 and it says Doc Brown committed. I noticed for the first time that it says Nixon seeks a uh, fifth term vows to end the war in Vietnam. <laughs> so are they saying that Biff's ascension to power was so such a, you know, a, an earth shattering uh, event that it caused Nixon to be reelected that many times. It's just such a strange thing. But I, I think again, what I like about these movies is that you can keep watching them and keep finding little funny things, little Easter eggs, little things to make you think about the movie or think about what the filmmakers were thinking when they made the movie. And that to me goes a long way for, for it, their rewatchability and for my enjoyment of, of those movies. If, if you know a film verbatim and you can't, you're not getting anything new out of it every time, it's kind of like, well, why watch it again? Right? Like, what are you going to, what's the point? But if you're if you literally can learn something new or think about the movie in a new light every time you view it, I think that says a lot about what the filmmakers have done and uh, and that they actually achieve something that stands the test of time. 
All right. Well, that's going to do it for us for this edition of the Feel and Film podcast. We've got one more in our trilogy celebrating Back to the Future coming at you next episode. Be sure to stay subscribed, tune in, and enjoy the conversation. We will talk soon, gentlemen. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.